There's something that at times I simply do not understand. There is no one on this planet that I love more than my wife. We have spent a lot of years together. And we probably know each other better than we know anybody else. And yet, at times, now get ready, I'm going to wreck you. The pastor and his wife argue. We disagree. I know, I've just ruined your image of me and our perfect marriage. I don't understand it. And the fact is, so many times, it is about the singular, most stupid things imaginable. I guess when you're rubbing up against each other all the time, your day-to-day experiences, and that's true whether you're married, it may be true with your children, it may be true with friends, you just find they irritate you. They get under your skin. And you react. Now, those of you that have that pious look, knock it off. You do too. As I was thinking about that, I came. I, I saw this video a while back. I don't think I've used it before. That just talks about the stupid things married people argue about. See how many of them you can really identify with. It doesn't matter how you fold a towel. It does matter how you fold a towel. If you want it to fit in the closet, you have to roll it. Toilet paper goes over. It's printed that way so you could see it. No, the toilet paper goes under so that the cats don't get at it. That makes no sense. What do you want to get for dinner? I don't really care. Then just pick something. You choose. I don't see why I have to put the utensils face down. Because when they're sticking up like that, if someone trips and falls, they're going to impale themselves and die. That's literally the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I'm not playing this game where I list every single thing and you shoot it all down. I'm not doing this again. Well, then I don't know what to tell you. Oh my gosh, watch this. This is the best line. Did you watch this without me? You were home! Seriously, six more inches and it's in the sink. Well, then put it in six more inches. I get it. it. Anything will be fine. It's food. Fine. All right. We're going to get pizza. Anything but pizza. (laughs) What do you want to eat? That is Bill Paxton. It is Bill Pullman. Bill Paxton was in Aliens. That is Bill Paxton. That is him. Game over, man. That is that man right there. (laughs) Why am I going to put him away? I'm wearing him tomorrow morning. I don't care if you're wearing them tomorrow morning. I don't want them just sitting by my side of the bed all night. Why do you do this? You squeeze from the bottom. The next person doesn't have to squeeze then. It's toothpaste. It's not like it's hard to squeeze it from a new area on the tube. Why are we fighting about this? Why are we fighting about this? Why are we fighting about this? I'm sorry. (laughs) I shouldn't have made you make the decision. That being said, I think your original call of pizza... Is fine. Just no pepperoni. I'm going to murder you, and when the pizza guy gets here, he's going to help me bury your body, and then we are going to get married. No, he won't, because he'll probably be like, yeah, I feel you, bro. (laughs) (laughs) What is always fun is being up here and watching you 
because I can tell which ones you do. You know, there's sort of these giggles back and forth and kind of a few of these. And the fact is, we, with those that we love and those that we live close with, find ourselves in in those kinds of situations. Conflict is a part of life. Conflict with others is a part of life. And one of the things that I've come to understand in my own life, I use it in premarital counseling and lots of different situations, is to understand this. Disagreement is not an indication of godlessness or unfaithfulness. But disagreement is an opportunity for us to express our faithfulness and our godliness. They become an opportunity for us to respond to others, resting on the promises of God that we have come to understand. As we come to Genesis chapter 13, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to that particular passage. There is a disagreement that develops between Uncle Abram and nephew Lot. And it is instructive because you will remember that when we look at the book of Genesis, it is not primarily a moral discussion of how we ought to live, per se, as much as it is a declaration of the impact of God's promise upon our lives. The fact is that we are people of promise. Now, not the Old Testament promise. That was the Old Covenant, Old Testament. But we live under promise, that being the New Covenant. The the covenant that we remembered as we were partaking of the elements this morning, and we are reminded of Paul's words as he is quoting Jesus, that this blood is the New Covenant. I mean, this cup is the New Covenant in my blood. That promise at times will seem challenged, like in Genesis 12, where there is famine in the land, and Abram decides to go to Egypt and begin to deal with trying to protect the promise and himself in ways that are in opposition to God's very character. We saw those struggles last week. Now there is another challenge to the promise, and that is the conflict that is taking place between Abram and his nephew Lot. And as you're working your way through this passage, as you watch the interactions, particularly as you watch the way that Moses constructs this paragraph, and that, that's the work of, of, of Bible studies, to look at where's the author's focus? Where is the author causing our eyes to fall? And particularly at the time that Moses lived, where did the author ask our ears to be perked up? What does he repeat? What does he, what does he focus upon? What are the themes that run through it? And in looking at that, you begin to understand what Moses is talking about as he's teaching the people of Israel, as they enter into the land based on the promises that God has given them. And as we, as people of promise, enter into that relationship that we share with the Father through Christ and the empowerment of the Spirit, how do we live that out in our lives? No, the promise may be different. The process is the same. 
And in this interaction between Lot and Abram, we come to understand that God is pleased with those who, through faith, through their dependence, through their understanding of God's promise, their understanding of God's presence, their understanding of God's providence, that they are able to walk in a way that is opposite that of the world. And rather than being self-centered in the midst of our conflicts, we are charitable. We are other-centered. We think first of others before ourselves. And as you look at the way Moses wrote this chapter, as you look at the emphasis, how he begins it and how he ends it, as you look at the phrases that he uses that echo Genesis chapter 3 or that are a ways that God says, Abraham says something and then God says something, and you look at the way that is structured, you begin to understand that God is proclaiming to Abraham his pleasure at Abraham's faith. Now, as you begin to work your way through, and you're there in Genesis chapter 13, and in verses 1 through 3, Moses lays down the foundation for this. He brings back to us the remembrance that this man, um, Lot, is traveling along with Abraham. He reminds us, in a sense, that they had been in Egypt, and it was in some ways a disastrous time, and in some ways God was gracious and used it as a time of blessing. But the one thing that becomes clear as Moses is writing this, as he does an inclusio, as he does an enveloping, as he begins and ends with the same theme, and it's this, that conflicts will arise when we are walking faithfully. Again, conflict is not the declaration of the presence of godliness, of godlessness. Even when we are faithful, even when we are in the midst of God's promises, even when we have a good marriage, there will be conflicts. There will be disagreements. And how we handle those is a reflection of our faithfulness and our trust in the promises of God. Now, the first thing you begin to understand is that conflict is a part of human relationships after the fall. I really don't believe that Adam and Eve before the fall ever argued. Not sure what that looked like. But somehow there was no sin. There was no self-centeredness. There was no selfishness. There was nothing within them that was inherited as a result of the fall before the fall. And there was a perfect relationship. Since the fall, nah. In fact, Genesis chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 are all about the conflicts, the struggles. It is a result of the fact that we are fallen creatures. And whether we want to admit it or not, the first person we think about is me. When I am involved in a conflict, the very first way that I begin to think is, I think about my hurt and your wrong. And yet that's not the direction that God calls us to be about. 
If we really believe the promises of God, if we really believe in the presence of God, if we really believe in the providence of God, that God is working out his purpose in our lives, if we really believe that we have a perfect relationship with a perfect father who knows us completely and fully and perfectly and yet still perfectly loves us, if we understand that he is working out his will in every situation and that he is the one who is sovereign and therefore I can respond in every situation based on his sovereignty, then what I will think about is my wrong and your hurt first. In premarital counseling, I have this thing I call the bucket theory of conflict. And it's whoever gets their bucket of slop up on, the, up on the table first. You deal with that until the bucket is cleaned out. Then you shift and say, well, can we talk about my side of this? In conflict, God asks us not to be self-centered, but to be other-centered. Conflicts arise when we are faithful because we are fallen. We are not perfect because we are living with unperfect people. Even when we are in the midst of God's promises and faithful, and you see it in two ways. Moses introduces us to that. When in in chapter 3, we read from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel. He is back in the land. He is back in the place of promise. He is back in the place that God has asked him to sojourn in. And in the midst of that, he is where God wants him to be. Not in Egypt, not in disobedience, not in a lack of trust and faith, but right in the middle of God's purpose. And even more, we read that Abraham is back in fellowship. This is where Moses' focus is. Because as you continue to read there in verse 4 and verse 3, it says he went from place to place, Bethel and Ai, where he had his tent had been earlier, and where we had first built an altar. And there Abraham called out to the name of the Lord. The inclusio, the focus, the, the center of all of this is then repeated again in verse 18 as he concludes this paragraph this this um, this setting, this situation, where he reminds us that it's where he built the altar to the Lord. He is back in fellowship with God. He is back communing with God. There was an absence of God for that whole time he was in, in Egypt. There was no communion with him. There was no altar with him. Yes, God was working, but Abram wasn't enjoying the relationship. Now he's back in that relationship or enjoying that relationship. He never lost it, but he lost the enjoyment Conflicts are going to arise. Moses says, even when we're walking where we need to walk. Conflicts arise in the midst of blessing and prosperity. What is so interesting about this passage is the very things God prospers Abraham, I'm sorry, Abram with in chapter 12 with the the herds and and the servants and and all the things that he was given by the Egyptians as he left. Sounds a lot like the Exodus. But all of those things become the very center of the conflict. 
That which he had received in unfaithfulness now becomes a struggle in the midst of his faithfulness. And it goes on in verse 5 to say, Now Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. It's interesting. Abraham has flocks and herds and silver and gold. Abram was a little bit more wealthy. I'd rather have you know, herds and flocks and silver and gold than herds and flocks and tents. How about you? But a conflict arises. And it was that the land could not support them in all of their wealth and all that they had. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, the servants that they had received. The struggle was that the Canaanites, the Perizzites, were in the land together. And there wasn't enough room in order for them to, in the uninhabited areas, be together and deal with all of their flocks. And so conflict arose. The conflicts that we have. One of the biggest conflicts Cindy and I have, and it's serious, is where to set the thermostat. I, with, with my diabetes, sometimes I'm really cold. And the office here is often cold, and I'm in my cold car, driving home, come into the house, and I want it warm. And then what Sydney will say to me is, well, just put on a sweater. Why aren't you wearing socks? Some of you have the same argument. I can tell it. The other day, Sydney came in, and she was really cold. I'm cold. Turn up the heat. My, you know what my response was. Why don't you put on a sweater? Why don't you put on socks? In the midst of all our prosperity, we, we, we have those conflicts. But there's a purpose behind them. They function for us. They are teleological. They're moving in a direction. God allows us in the midst of those struggles. And here's why. Because conflicts provide opportunity to strengthen our dependent faith. And to say, God, I can be other-centered towards them because I know that you are fully committed to loving me. You are fully committed to always doing what is best in my life. And it frees me to love others. As you read down, you begin to understand that as in every situation, no matter where it is, if, if you're driving your car, if you're doing the dishes, if you're, if you're making a decision about your work, if you're making a decision about a spouse, if you're making a decision about your children, if you're, whatever it might be that we're involved in, every situation becomes an opportunity to respond either in faith or faithlessness. What? part does the promises of God play in this? What part does his faithfulness play in this? What part does his love for me and for that, the person who I am interacting with, what part does that play in this situation? There's a wonderful old book called Practicing the Presence of God. And the idea that in every moment of my life, I understand that the choices of my life are either based on faith in who God is and what he is doing, or faithlessness. That's true in our conflicts. 
That's true in our disagreements. That's true in the thermostat arguments and the remote control arguments. It's power. Faith and faithlessness. You see, there's one choice, which is the choice of faith, and it is the choice of Abraham. And this is kind of the the, the interaction, and there's two dialogues that take place within within this chapter. One is a dialogue of Abraham, or Abram, who is making his choice, and he tells us why he makes that choice. The second dialogue is found when God then responds to what Abram and Lot does. But you read in verse 8, so Abram said to, the Lord, to, to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. It is not the whole, it is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And in there, you begin to see some of the, the reality of Abram's choice to depend upon God and his promises. The very first thing you see, that it is a loving choice, that the choice of faith is a loving choice motivated by a desire for peace or for unity. There is something more important than my preferences. There is something more important than my desires. There is something more important than my comfort. It's the unity within the family of God. Here, a biological family. Here, a spiritual family. How many of our arguments are caused by preference? Nothing important. Nothing central. And and by the way, there's kind of a funness about that little bantering back and forth as a couple. I'm not, you know, I'm not here to say you've got a lousy marriage if you do that. There are times Cindy and I just have fun with it. And there are other times. but, But so often they're about preference. God says, give a preference to unity, to peace. Peace there being a rightness, a a correctness, a reflection of God's presence, a shalom in my relationships. So Abram says, let's deal with this. Let's not have quarreling between you and me. And what's so interesting is the word there is Meribah. If you know your book of Exodus, Meribah is the place where God calls a particular location, Meribah, bitterness, quarreling, because they were quarreling against Moses, the nation of Israel. They were quarreling, you know, why did we get this and why did we get that? There's a reason why they're called the children of Israel. Because often they acted that way. And as Moses is thinking about the promise, he's saying, we don't need to be people of bitterness like that. Here, this is what Abram did when he was dealing with conflict and difficulty and when he was dealing with with a lack of his preference. He he didn't deal with it in bitterness and grumbling in Meribah. He sought unity. It's a sacrificial choice made from a place of strength. You didn't catch it. probably we didn't. But did you see what Abram called Lot? He said, we are 
brothers. That's incredible. Abram is not Lot's brother. He's his uncle. He has the position of authority. He is a generation ahead. He is the one with greater wealth. He is the one who has the promise. He is the one that has all of those things for him. And yet, he was willing to lay them aside and make Lot his equal. We are brothers for the sake of unity. Joe, thank you for the passage you chose this morning. We did not collaborate on this. But it is exactly what Jesus does in John chapter 13, verses 3 through 5. And it is based on what he knew of his place, his strength, his authority. He did not respond by saying, I'm in charge. He was able to take that place of strength and authority and say, because I know this, I can serve you. It's not a challenge of my identity. It's not a challenge of my sense of authority. It's not a challenge to my power. It's not a challenge to those kinds of things. I know who I am in the Father, and therefore I can serve you. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from the Father and he was returning to God. So as a result of understanding who he was in his relationship with the Father, so result clause, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That's offensive to the first century. That's vile that the master, the rabbi, would wash the filthy, dung-filled, mud-stained feet of his disciples. Why? Because he understood who he was and understood that none of this was a challenge to his identity in the Father. Do you know that? Are you able to serve others because of the security, the strength of your relationship with God? Are you willing to set aside your demands and preferences because you know that ultimately God is working out his purpose, his best purpose in your life, and if you lay it aside and serve others, that God will honor that? Paul wrote it this way, your attitude should be the same as that which was Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, the very position of deity, do you get any higher than that? He did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, and the word means to be held on to and used exclusively for his benefit. But he emptied himself, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. He was willing to go to the cross, not simply because he loved us, but because he knew that the Father, the Father's will, was what was best. And if the Father called him to serve others, the Father would honor that. 
And I don't have the rest of the verses, but the rest of the verses talk about how the father honored the son and was pleased with what he did. The choice of faith is a faith-filled choice, resting on the promises of God. Do you notice what Abraham says as he's reading through there? He says, it's not the whole land before us. Didn't God give us the whole land? We can do this on the basis of his promise. Look at the bounty of what God gave us. It is so bountiful. I can be magnanimous because God is benevolent. And I can choose to give to you. And then finally, It is a principled choice based on unity over preference. Beloved, we have so many arguments in the body of Christ. So many arguments in our relationships. And so often, they are about foolish, unessential, often insignificant issues that have much more to do with preference than they have to do with unity. God's word calls us to be unified, to stand together, to be committed to demonstrating the love of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't times when I need to say no. Of course there are. Issues of of, of first-level theology. The deity of Christ, the, the, the substitutionary comment, the, the trinity, and things like that, that yes, I will have to divide on. I will say, I, have, I cannot stand with you on these things. So many things are not first-level theology. Few things are fatal doctrines, those we're willing to die for, or to, or to end a relationship for. There are some. There are moral issues, but so often what we tend to do is we make the insignificant into moral issues. I tell you about the very first church split I went through as a pastor. The argument was whether or not to put the bathroom in the front of the church or the back of the church. And it became a moral argument of whether or not it was godly to pass by the bathrooms in order to enter into the sanctuary. Or whether it was more uh, immoral to stand up during the service and to make your way past the sacred desk to the bathroom. It was not a moral issue. It was preference. It was insignificant. As far as I'm concerned, put the bathrooms in the middle. I don't care. But we need to be wise. Paul says it this way. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. We could just stop there. End of sermon. We're done. Let's walk out. Some of you are going, yes. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If possible, as far as it depends on you. My wrong, your hurt. Live at peace with everyone. Prisoners of the Lord, then, in Ephesians 4, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every 
effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one father of all, one style of music, one color of the chairs, one color of the carpets. No! One temperature to keep this thermostat. Those are innocent. Those are non-essentials. They are preferences. Paul says, yes, there are things that we stand for. There is the hope, which is the doctrine, the theology. There is that which we are called. There is one faith. There is one baptism that unites us. There is one God. Yes, there are things that are essential. But can we be honest? Most that we argue about is simply fluff. Facing conflicts without faith? Lot's choice is one of faithlessness. The very first thing it says is that he looked, he saw, and he chose. That should be, uh, it's in verse 10. But in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, you hear exactly those same words used of someone else. Her name was Eve, who looked who saw, and who partook. It is the choice made simply on the basis of sight, what I see. But there's so much more. It's a self-centered choice focused on promotion rather than peace. As you read down through Lot's choice and you read about what was going on, it says, so Lot chose, and it's so interesting, Moses throws this in here for himself. He didn't care about anybody else. No considering others more important. No loving others more than myself. No, none of that. This is what I want. I really don't care what you want. And then finally, it's a misguided choice made without guidance or principle. No seeking of God's direction, no seeking of God's guidance. Now I know that's an argument from absence. But there's a really interesting sort of focus that, that Moses throws in here. He reminds us, he chose the southern area. By the way, there was this little town there called Sodom. You may have heard of it. They were corrupt. And their description is so interesting. It's not used anywhere else in all, the new, in all of the scriptures and all of the Old Testament. It says that they were exceedingly wicked before the Lord. Lot was blind. There's no faith. And as I was thinking through this, I thought, how do I, how do I make decisions based on faith? James warns us that what causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet. You cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you do not ask God. There's no faith involved in it. When you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. Because you want it just for you. And there's nothing greater than just you and what you're deciding. Several years ago, the whole um, Bible study, experiencing God, was really, really big. 
And, and I remember at the church I was at, everybody was coming up to me and saying, we're not a spiritual church unless we do experiencing God. That's why it took us three years later to do it. I don't like that kind of stuff. But when we finally did it, there was something that the author had really talked about and I found so interesting. He talked about, how do I know when God is leading me? What should Lot have done? What, what, what should Abram have done? What, what is it that God calls forth in us? And I think what, what Blackaby talks about is kind of the indicators in our life that God is moving in a direction. He has four. I think he missed one. And so I think there's five. And this is what I would say. If you're trying to decide, what should I do? What's right here? What's the right direction involved in? I think there are five things you look at. First of all, you look at providential circumstances. Is God seeming to move in a particular direction? Are things going on that require us to deal with things? Abram looked at the situation between him and Lot and said, we can't keep going on like this. We have to do something. Look at the circumstances. Secondly, a sense of God's leading. It's ineffable. It's not easy to describe. And, and this is kind of, you have to be careful with this one. God told me. Boy, I don't like those words. Not because I don't like God telling us. Just because, honestly, I seldom believe it when you say it. But there is a sense of, of God kind of leading. Of I think he's moving in this direction. By the way, if you have that alone, God's not leading. Thirdly, a preponderance of proper motives. And what I mean by that is when I look at why am I doing this? Am I doing this for other-centeredness or for selfishness? If you ask me, am I doing that for other-centeredness, I'm sorry, if you ask me about anything that I do in my life, is there a selfish motive behind it? The answer is yes. But when I look at it and I balance it out, I I look at what's the purpose behind this? Yes, there's some selfishness there, but am I seeking to, to honor God? Am I seeking to serve others? Am I seeking to love well? Am I seeking to serve others? And I begin to look at it, and there's a preponderance. There's a, there's a weight to the more positive things than the negative, than the self-centered. That's the one that Blackaby doesn't have. Fourthly, the feedback of God's community. What do God's people think about what I'm about to do? People of wisdom. People that have walked with the Lord. People that understand the scriptures. Be open with them, honest. And then finally, and this is the most important of all, the truth of God's word. Does this in any way violate God's truth, God's principle? If you come to me and you say, as a believer, I want to marry this unbeliever. I really think God's leading me in that direction. And all of my friends tell me it's a good idea. I'm going to say, it ain't. Why? Because God's scripture is very clear. If you come to me and you say, you know, my wife and I really can't get along. It's time to divorce. My response is going to be, nah. But God wouldn't want me to be this unhappy. Yeah, where'd you read that at? God's word takes precedent above all. When these are aligned, when these are moving in a direction, boy, we can be certain that God is moving. What if Abram, what if Lot had done this? 
God, yes, there's a struggle going on, but God, I really seek your leading. I really seek your guidance. I want to know what is best. Reveal to me the things that maybe I'm missing, the things that I don't understand. I need a sense of your leading, God. God, look, I want to look at my motives. You know what? I'm really doing this out of selfishness. Maybe I need to move in a different direction, just simply out of repentance. God, I really need to examine this. I really need to be honest about this in my life. I really need to talk to others about my motive and my purposes, and I need to use the community that is around me, whether it's my family, and that's all I had. But to talk about, you know, what's the best? What's the interaction? Do you notice there's no interaction between Lot and Abram, only Abram and Lot, not the other way. And they didn't have a lot of revelation at this time, but we sure do. God, I really want to know where you're leading and guiding. And when they line up, God is leading. And we choose. We choose to move in his direction. And find his blessing. I remember a friend when I was in college. He's a pastor of a big church down in Austin. He was trying to decide on what car to buy. And, and I'll never forget it. He, you know, he, he just prayed about it. He, and he talked to his friends about it. And, and he, was con- he was just committed to buying the car that he believed God would have him to buy. But, you know, that's really cool. We seek God's direction. We seek God's leading. We walk by faith and not by sight. And the result? Our Father's pleased. When we surrender our own selfish, self-committed preferences to serve others, when we're willing to serve, even when the music is not what I wish them to be, or you know, the color of the carpet is not what I think it ought to be, or or you know, the sermon isn't what I think it ought to be, or when I choose to serve you, even though I did the work and you get the glory. When I choose to say, you know what, this is about preference, and I want to find a way to love you. Can you imagine having an argument where it's no, you do it. I think it's best for you. No, 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 you do it. I think it's best for you. Listen, if you argue like that, please come and tell me how you did that. But when we do it, our Father is pleased. You see it here in Genesis chapter 13. see it in a number of ways. First of all, just very, very quickly. You see it when God interacts with Abram. And the first thing that he does as he's interacting with him is that he challenges his faith even more. There's a little word in the Hebrew. We don't have time to look at it. It's a little word, nah. It's often untranslated because it's sort of just a, a way of, of speaking, of, of introducing. But when God says it, it's only four times in all the Old Testament where nah is used in God's address. And in each of those times, it can be translated please. But the idea is I'm about to challenge your faith in a way that is, by human terms, absurd but I'm going to honor you. And that's what he does with Abram here when he begins everything there in in verse 14 with nah. The second thing is he expands the promise. He says, Abram, yes, I promised you a nation, but let me tell you, your offspring are going to be as many as the sands of the earth. And it's not just the land of Cana. Abram, look around. Everything you see, I will give you. 
But finally, Moses ends by saying in verse 18 that Abram continues at the altars in his worship and his fellowship of God. When we choose to live by faith, our Father is pleased. Faith or faithlessness? It begins with faith in Christ for salvation. But it continues every moment, every second, every area, every aspect of our lives. Father, thank you that you allow us to be people of faith. May we learn what that means in our lives as we walk day by day. Father, we would ask that everyone here would know your Son as their Savior, begin that walk by faith, and would invite those that are uncertain to come and talk. For all of us, we pray that we would learn what it means to live by faith in all of our relationships and all of the events of our lives. For your honor and your glory, we ask it in the name of your Son. Amen.